What do you do when the insurance company pays you less than your bottom line? Do you lose money or stop doing a necessary procedure? And how do you live with your choice? You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today is Dr. Pamela Moore, Senior Editor at Physicians Practice Magazine. Welcome, Pam. Thanks. Can't wait to get started. Okay, well, Pam, listen, I've said time and time again on all my shows that medicine's not a business, but it's a sacred profession of caring. But I've been in the same position as as to what you've written about. Years ago, in my office, we dispensed medications at about a dollar over cost, but we reached a point where insurance companies told us we'd have to accept their reimbursements at a level less than our cost, so we quit. But you've written about a more serious issue than a few dollars worth of pills. Let's start by giving some examples of choices doctors are making, including some of those from your editorial in in physician's practice. Absolutely, and there's no doubt, no matter how sacred the profession is, it's still ensconced in a business-style network. So there's no decision that's pure anymore. Um, So some examples, your example is a good one, but we've seen even more maybe even more profound differences between what physicians are paying out of pocket to provide care to their patients versus what they're getting reimbursed for that care. So one great example is in the pediatric community right now is up in arms around the cost of immunizing young children. So the American Association of Pediatrics estimates that in the first year of a newborn's life, it costs a pediatrician about $850 simply to pay for the immunizations for that newborn. That doesn't even include paying the nurse to put the shot in, paying for the refrigeration, talking the mother into having the shot, reassuring them about this isn't going to cause a major disease down the line. doesn't cover any of that. Just straight the cost of the immunizations, $850. At the same time, many managed care companies are capping the annual preventative benefits to their beneficiaries at $300. So that's a $550 loss to pediatricians for each newborn's care they undertake. And that's forcing a lot of them to wonder, gosh, we sure do believe as professionals in the beauty of vaccination for each patient as well as for public health, but we can't keep losing this much money on each patient or we'll not be able to provide care to any patient. So what are pediatricians doing in that case? Are they eating $500 a piece per patient? You know, I think they're facing hard decisions. Now, Part of the answer there is that not every single managed care practice has so severe a payment plan. If you can get some managed care companies paying more to cover the people who are paying less, uh, you're in better shape. Or you you try to cost share the problem, basically. Um, But certainly I'm talking with more and more pediatricians who are considering not offering immunizations in their practices any longer. And they're saying to patients, look, you're going to have to find a a clinic somewhere, some kind of state-run clinic or, you know, pay out of pocket down at the acute care center because we're not doing it. With the managed care contract for the pediatricians, is that legal with their contract to send a patient down to a public health clinic when they're supposed to be covering all their care? Well, that's an interesting question. It's not if you are supposed to be providing all their covered care, you need to be providing all their covered care. But what you can say is we're not going to contract with that payer anymore, certainly. And if you're looking for that level of care, you need to go elsewhere. Okay, so what else is happening out there besides the pediatric vaccinations? Here's a more general issue, and it's probably a most more representative. Physicians practice does a survey every year asking all of our readers about what managed care companies are paying them for general evaluation and management services. So the data from 2006 shows that for a evaluation and management visit that's coded at a 99213, so for those of you who are not coding, coding junkies, a 99213 is an established patient office visit that's sort of mid-level. 
usually like a 10 to 15 minute visit. Maybe there's one or two chronic conditions. So for that 10 to 15 minute visit, the average payment from managed care companies was $50.80 in 2006, according to our survey. So what I like to say is that doesn't sound too bad for 10 minutes of work. On the other hand, when I go to my hairdresser and I get my hair like cut with a razor, it's really cropped short, you know, she has almost no training. She cuts it in like 10 minutes and I pay her about 70 bucks. So I think it's all relative. And where physicians are feeling the crunch around that $50 point is if it's a 10-minute visit, one thing. But if we're seeing more and more patients, given the way our population is changing, the way the demographics are changing, who need long discussions about topics like smoking cessation, long discussions around obesity and nutrition and exercise, even long discussions around diabetes or hypertension, A lot of that isn't hands-on procedural work that it's easy to code for. It's often care that feels like it's going unreimbursed. And so the temptation, no matter how sacred the profession is, look, I've got to see 40 patients a day, 50 patients a day. If I'm going to get on to the next patient in the next 10 minutes, I'm not going to bother talking about the patient's obesity. I'm not going to give them yet another long discussion about their smoking. I might say, hey, you really got to stop smoking, but then i got to move on. I don't have time to explore all this with them. And I think that's where some of the shortcuts in care happen as well. Well, when you do your study, do you also do the other side and calculate what a physician's office costs per hour to run? I mean, you, you have like $50 there, and you can do, um, what, six, four, four or six dozen hours. That's $250 an hour. What's the average cost to run that physician's office, or do we not know that number? That's a great question. I don't know the number per hour, but certainly all the evidence shows that the overhead costs in a physician office are increasing. So I actually just got some data strictly in primary care offices. What percent of net medical revenue are the practices spending out in overhead? And for the first time, it's topping on average well over 50%, like in the 60% range, which is just depressing. So for every dollar you earn as a physician, you spend 60 60 cents of it back out to your staff and your technology and your billing company and so on. Right. And reimbursements are only going lower, as we know, in the future. That's right. What does the AMA say about this? Do they have guidelines that we're supposed to follow in this situation? AMA, bless their hearts, serves so many masters and have to be so diplomatic. So they've clearly stated in their you know, ethical guidelines that physicians should always regard the patient's interest as paramount. So if the patient needs a more expensive surgery, even though you're not going to get reimbursed in full, and that's, but that's really what the patient needs, you should go ahead and do that. The patient's interests are paramount. But obviously, when you delve a little bit deeper into the subject, I think it's harder to say what the patient's interests really are. Like, is it in the patient's interest if the practice literally goes bankrupt over time? I was just about to say that. The AMA says we're supposed to care about patients, but we're not supposed to go broke, and and sometimes that's a paradox, isn't it? It is a paradox. The other thing, certainly, is physicians are also being told all the time, primarily by managed care companies, but also with the AMA, who's certainly been involved in a lot of the pay-for-performance programs, for example, Physicians are also being pushed to look at the larger societal good. So, gosh, not every patient does need the most expensive treatment. Or I might want to order that test just to be sure, but I know I'm really not supposed to do that in order to keep health care costs down overall for all of us. So to identify the patient's interest, I would suggest, is not always as straightforward as it sounds. 
Yeah, I think the patient's interest has to look at a societal interest. Let me ask you another question. A few years ago, there was a, I remember reading some articles, and there was a huge discussion about how under the Americans with Disabilities Act, that if we have a patient who's deaf and requires a, an interpreter to sign, the physician has to bear the cost of the interpreter. And that means that a physician could pay a couple of hundred dollars for the interpreter when he or she's being reimbursed 40 or $50 for the visit. I mean, uh, this is still this is still law today, isn't it? And and how do we how do you deal with this? It just goes to how frustrating managing a practice, running a practice, can be today, and certainly to the specific issue of that disability act. But my understanding is that you have to provide some kind of accommodation. So it's not as if you have to pay in full for a sign language interpreter, but certainly it's in the patient's interest. Same thing with a lot of the immigrant population we have now and a lot of people who don't have English as their primary language. I know a lot of practices just rely on that patient's you know, daughter or son or something to interpret for them. But there's a lot of things that a daughter or son being younger, won't want to communicate, say, to their, their adult parent. All kinds of complications. So really, it's in the patient's best interest if you provide a full-time, say, Spanish to English interpreter or a Mandarin to English interpreter as well. But who can afford to do it? Right. And sometimes, luckily, you're, you're, like my office is in a hospital, and we have interpreters in the hospital that we can just haul over to our office. And But it gets touchy sometimes. Yesterday, I, I did a consultation on a patient who only spoke Italian, and I was lost, and she had a terrible skin rash. And luckily, the guy visiting the next bed, in the bed next to her, spoke Italian. Well, I just broke all the HIPAA laws, and I know I'm probably going to get arrested now for saying this on the air, but this guy helped me save this patient. You know, without him, I would have been lost. I didn't know what to do because I didn't know she didn't speak English, and I can't speak with my hands. So, <laughs> all right. So uh, what do you do if you make a decision not to offer a service? You know, I would encourage practices, physicians, first of all, to take a step back. My sense of things is that there is such a high level of frustration among the physician population, whether it's HIPAA or it's the American Disability Act or it's translation laws or, you know, whatever it is. There's such a high level of frustration that sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. So I would say before you make an emotionally based decision, look, we can't just afford to keep spending all this money and providing all these services. We're losing too much money. Make it a true business decision. So before you put yourself into an ethical quandary, go ahead and look. All right, how exactly, how much exactly are we spending on each vaccine, for example? Can we find a different wholesaler to sell it to us? How can we improve our workflow around the administration of the vaccines that we're not spending as much around that? Can we find ways to cut costs elsewhere? Can we find ways to improve our collections so the fact that we lose money isn't hurting us as much? It is absolutely true that a lot of practices today are on the brink of bankruptcy, but I also see a lot of practices that have terrible management. I mean, they're run like it's crazy, like no business should be run. So I would say first look at ways you can better manage your basics and see if you can get a better bottom line there before you have to look at hurting your patient care. Right, and sometimes you can find pretty creative ways to do that. Is there any way to get help on that? Should we? Are there consultants we can hire? Because we don't get training on business in medical school. We get none. What's the average practice supposed to do? Yeah, and heaven knows there's enough to learn in medical school without learning all this as well. But I would say that most of it isn't rocket science. It's basic business principles, money in versus money out. And some quick training for the physician, him or herself, would not be a terrible idea. There's courses offered in practice management through the Medical Group Management Association, through organizations like PrimeMed offers a a two-day track in practice management issues at their regional events. Often specialty societies put out bulletins or areas on their websites or audio conferences and so on, also trying to educate people on specialty-specific information. So take the time to learn what you can. 
And also take the time to just be truly responsible for what you're being responsible for anyway. So what I mean by that is, for example, most physicians I know do review their accounts receivable report monthly, but most of them go, ah, lots of numbers. Okay, moving on. I mean, just taking the time to really understand what that looks like in the same way that you'd be responsible for really understanding what's happening with your personal finances. It's not enough to just assume things are going to work out. I would also encourage physicians to look seriously at who they have as their manager in their practice. Often a medical practice with three, four docs is a million-dollar business, but they have people running them who no other million-dollar business in America would hire as the manager. It's somebody who moved up in the organization from the receptionist 20 years ago or the spouse of the physician. Not to say your spouses are idiotic or anything, but you are running a million-dollar business. Is another million or multi-million-dollar business going to hire your spouse to run their business? You may be saving money by having somebody who's lower educated or using your spouse in that position, but you're probably losing as much money by not hiring somebody who has a lot of experience and who's a true CEO-style professional. Right. I think it's always good to get a professional like that. Well, Pam, thanks for being my guest today and discussing the real-world ethics of what we do when our cost exceeds our reimbursement. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and we truly thank you for listening.